everyone and welcome to another episode of To See or Not To See. I am your host, Grace Curley, and today I will be diving into the childhood classic Peter Pan by J.M. Barry. This is the second part of the Peter Pan episode in which I will be discussing the potential Jungian archetypes in the characters, the tragedy of forgotten youth and false identity, and how genuine happiness cannot be achieved unless the self becomes actualized. I suggest that if you haven't yet, you listen to the first part before this one. Stay tuned! When Peter and Wendy meet, it is when he is trying to attach his shadow back to his body as it tends to cause havoc when out of his control. Wendy sews it on for him and they exchange kisses, which is a thimble as Peter does not have a concept of a kiss. Our first introduction to Peter Pan is this scene, stalking for his runaway shadow, catching it and crying when it won't obey him, and then through the hands of a female, reattaches it again. This is no coincidence. Peter's shadow is seen as disobedient, impulsive, mischievous, and mercurial, and seems to be able to detach itself from Peter. His shadow can be seen through the eyes of the shadow archetype in Jungian philosophy, which is the unconscious part of ourselves that we refuse to see. The shadow is emotional in nature, for it must oppose the rigidness of the ego. It holds its own autonomy, separate from the conscious mind, therefore being instinctive and irrational. It is prone to psychological projection. The fact that Peter's unconscious mind is able to freely traverse on its own, completely separate from his conscious mind, symbolises that the unconscious cannot be controlled or aware of itself unless integrated with the conscious mind by the conscious mind. When Peter tries to reattach it himself using only one side of his mind, the masculine side, he fails where Wendy, the feminine side, succeeds. So we can deduce that the unconscious mind can be integrated with our conscious minds through the assimilation of our masculine and feminine parts, or in Jungian philosophy, the anima and the animus. But in terms of that philosophy, I think that Pan's shadow is only one archetype of the shadow. It more represents the unconscious mind, while the character of Hook represents the shadow archetype. He is the polarised, obstinate, fragmented unconscious that is pieced together by the ego, the sense of self. While Pan's shadow is purely the symbol of the unconscious mind that exists as a separate entity, but with a certain degree of autonomy, but has not been crystallised yet. The shadow archetype is everything we have denied in ourselves and cast into oblivion, or rather everything that the ego or persona has refused to associate with itself, but that we can notice in other people, such as spontaneity, aggression, instinct, cowardice, carelessness, passion or enthusiasm. It embraces all those sins, dark thoughts and moods for which we feel guilt and shame. Now I believe that there is no main character of this story, each character is an archetype, a fragment of I, fragments of a person. Pan's shadow may be the unconscious mind, Hook the polarised shadow, Mr. Darling the persona, Pan the animus, Wendy the anima, and the self remains unactualised. Hook was not his true name. To reveal who he really was would even at this date 
set the country in a blaze. So Hook used to be a whole person named James before experiencing trauma, and when a further trauma was inflicted by the loss of his hand, his identity became even more fractured to the point where he constructed and entrenched a new defensive false identity, Hook, and had to grow accustomed to living within the bit that was left for the rest of his life, as he rejected the Neverland that was within him, as in the intrinsic unimpeded imagination. As he was no longer whole, physically, mentally or spiritually, he assimilated his false identity until it became his entire identity, changing his name to Hook and attaching the Hook to his arm. Such an identity can only allow for a limited scope of action and range. He can only act within his own self-conceived notion of Hook to maintain his reputation, his persona, his pride and his good form. He is obsessed with good form because a good form is presentation. He is obsessed with how he presents himself to the world, to others and to himself because he has and is nothing without that mask. And deep down, he knows it. That mask is what keeps him alive. That mask propels his will to live as he lives to prove to himself that he is not impotent. Without the mask, without the hook, without his good form, what exactly is he? Or rather, who is he? In fact, Hook fails in the final battle because he is overcome with the tragic feeling that Peter is showing good form, as he honourably lets Hook pick up his fallen sword. He realises that real good form is when the man does not know he himself has good form. When he is not actively trying and striving to present good form, but is rather unconsciously embodying it. And when he sees himself hoping for Peter to slip up and show bad form, he suddenly realises, what form is he himself showing? Perhaps he now does not even have good form, and in the face of that realised truth, he gives up because that feeling of insignificance and defeat makes him remember his life before Neverland, at his prestigious private school, being sent to the headmaster's office despite doing everything right. The only thing he had from that time was his institutionalised good form, and here he is now being overtaken even in that by an unlearned good form that is unbeknownst to Peter. So now... Hook is not even superior at that. Hook was fighting now without hope. That passionate breast no longer asked for life, but for one boon it craved, to see Peter show bad form before it was cold forever. So Hook, in the end, didn't even die by Peter's sword. He instead chose to die by throwing himself overboard into the jaws of the crocodile. He chose to run towards his fate, then live with the knowledge of his lie that would only torment him for the rest of his days. And in a desperate grasp for control, he made Peter show bad form at the end by kicking him off the ship instead of giving him an honourable death of stabbing him, causing Hook to happily jump into the jaws of the crocodile while cheering, Bad form! This was his final happiness. The one thing he'd been holding on to all this time, 
the one thing that truly mattered to him. He had been living in such a small fragment of himself for so long that he had forgotten he was a whole man, and used that crutch to craft an identity. So, if Hook is the shadow, then in direct reflection to that is Mr. Darling as the persona. The persona is obedience to expectations. It is the mask we wear to convince ourselves and others that we are not altogether a bad person. But one cannot go beyond the persona until he has incorporated into his character those darker character traits which belong to the shadow self. This manifests in when the children return home and Mr. Darling shirks off, finally, the external validation of his neighbours and the expenses and instead focuses on what truly matters. His children, home and safe, and giving these abandoned kids a home. It also shows in his adamance of not leaving the dog kennel until his kids return home as penance for driving them away. A man that was once so harsh, strident and proud can become humble and mellow in the face of his own loss. These characteristics of impulsivity, spontaneity, instinct and passion are all things that Mr. Darling had locked away in himself. Therefore, it is like the merging of his shadow self and his inner child with his persona. This merging allows him to be free of his own limitations and therefore can create genuine happiness in himself and others. This is when he is being primarily led by conscious thought instead of unconscious thought. Jung believed that nested inside the shadow are the qualities of our opposite gender, the anima and the animus. In every man there is a woman and in every woman a man, or rather there is the image of the ideal man or woman which is formed in part by the experience of one's mother and father and by the influence of culture and heritage. This is not in terms of feminine and masculine as arbitrary stereotypes, but as the ancient archetypes of Eros and Logos. Eros is the female energy associated with receptivity, creativity, relationships and wholeness, and Logos is the male energy identified with power, thought and action. The anima is then a personification of all feminine energy, positive or negative, in a man's psyche. A positive expression might include sensitivity, empathy, capacity for loving relationships. But if the anima is rejected or abandoned, that is if a man represses those characteristics which might be considered feminine, the anima becomes deformed. Natural feelings and emotions are replaced by moodiness and hysteria. Fidelity becomes possessiveness, aesthetics becomes sensuality, tenderness becomes effeminacy, imagining becomes mere fantasizing. The animus, on the other hand, is a personification of masculine energy in a woman's psyche, such as strength of conviction, assertiveness, courage, strength, vitality, and a desire for achievement. But if the woman disregards and abandons that masculine part, then she becomes possessed by the animus. Assertiveness becomes aggression and ruthlessness, and analytical thought will become argumentativeness. This can be seen as Wendy and Peter as personified female and masculine energies. When Wendy abandons Peter at the end, she is trading him in for adulthood, 
And when Peter forgets Wendy, he is forgetting that part of himself that has the capability of sensitivity and empathy. When they reunite after a long distance without each other, it is clear that Peter has reverted back once again to the uncaring and hedonistic boy, while Wendy seems to be too caught up in trivial things. Neverland and Peter start to seem not real to her, because the logical mind often cannot see what is right in front of them. When Wendy is telling the story of Peter Pan to her daughter Jane again, Jane asks why her mother's memory of Peter is fading, and Wendy answers that she forgets because she has lost access to the way. The way being the part of every person's mind that is the essence of distilled childhood, wonder, innocence, imagination, that tends to be rejected and corrupted during adulthood. Neverland is only accessible for those who are still in that state of mind, as magical things are only accessible to those who see magic. Like the shadow, the archetypes of the anima and animus have their own autonomy and are independent from our conscious mind. Thus the anima and animus can be projected in the world so that they appear to be qualities of a particular man or woman. In the presence of the anima, or a good imitation, a man feels a peculiar familiarity with her, as if he has known her for all his life. In some cases, the energy between the two is intoxicating to the point where he has fallen in love at first sight. In truth, he has fallen in love with a deception, with the image that he has projected onto another woman. It is only when the mirage of the projection disperses that he realises himself as a fool. Once the projection is withdrawn, the anima can be recognised as a force within oneself. After having integrated the anima, men seemingly reconnect with a divine power in their inner world, which must have always been within them, but which had to be shown by the presence of the feminine, by the guiding hand of a woman. This is further shown in Peter and Wendy's relationship. They seemingly fall in love immediately, with Peter seeing Wendy as a solution for his problems and as a mother archetype figure. Wendy sees Peter as a solution for her problems of feeling trapped and without control. She helps him sew his shadow back on, and only then can Peter exact control over his own unconscious. Through their meeting, their anima and animuses start to become merged, showing a whole new side of themselves. Peter learns from Wendy about sensitivity, empathy, and loyalty, and Wendy learns from Peter freedom, assertiveness, and boldness, all things they had both lacked. So in a way, their relationship could be seen as codependent and based on what they can do for the other. That is why when the mirage wears off, Peter realises that Wendy cannot replace a mother, and Wendy realises that Peter's life is not one she wants to live, even if it means absolute freedom. And that is when the anima and animus split again, unrealised because each are not willing to embrace, incorporate or integrate the other one completely. After all, Peter does not learn much from the adventures with Wendy as he forgets everything and cannot retain anything, and Wendy eventually grows up, locking that part of her away in a box, one that she might take out and look at in the comfort of her own company once in a while, to admire the clean, easy beauty of those days, but one that she ultimately must return to its hiding place, 
locked away and out of sight. We can kind of see Wendy turning into her mother, Mrs. Darling, who was a beautiful and soft-spoken woman who had not been completely gentrified by society. She still held dreams and lofty ideals, and in the beginning it is written that in the right-hand corner of her mouth there was a kiss, a kiss that nobody had ever claimed or ever could claim. It is realised that Wendy too has a kiss in the corner of her mouth. It's alluded that the kiss is a remnant of total freedom, a small part of her that is safe from the unmagical aspects of life and inaccessible to unmagical beings, including her husband and, sadly, her kids. Only something of its own kind can apprehend the kiss. Only Peter himself. After Peter leaves Mrs. Darling's house at the end of the book, it is written that he took Mrs. Darling's kiss with him. The kiss that had been for no one else, Peter took quite easily. Funny, but she seemed satisfied. Peter saw the kiss as soon as he saw Mrs. Darling, and could take that small part of her that not even Wendy could take, because Peter was the only magical thing separate from her external world. So that tiny part of Mrs. Darling could not vanish, unless taken by a worthy being made from that same stuff. And so when Peter took it with him, that part of her could rest and go with him, so she could accept time and the world without hidden disappointment and move forward. It is written that even Mr. Darling got all of her, except for the innermost box and the kiss. He never knew about the box, and in time he gave up trying for the kiss. Mr. Darling could never access the box Mrs. Darling kept close to her, which was the box of her dreams. It is alluded that Mrs. Darling knew Peter Pan as a girl, but had forgotten, because when he leaves, she is slightly changed. And when first introducing Peter, the narrator tells us that Peter is very much like Mrs. Darling's kiss. Peter and Wendy never truly kiss in the book, but it is alluded that he also takes Wendy's kiss. By the taking of the kiss, by the magical aspects of themselves that they have forgotten about, it is maintained that one is allowed to move on from childhood and welcome the changing fortunes of time and growth without resentment. So according to Jung, after one has overcome the persona and integrated his shadow and the aspects of the anima and animus archetypes into one's character, one then is given access to enter into the deepest and highest reaches of the psyche, the archetype of wholeness, or the self. The self embraces ego consciousness, shadow, anima, and collective unconscious in indeterminable extension. The self, then, is the sum of everything we are now, and everything we once were, as well as everything we could potentially become. It is the symbol of the God within us, that which we are as a totality. Wholeness is a key feature in Jung's psychology, both in terms of each human integrating or assimilating lost and underdeveloped potentials of the self, but also in terms of seeking to understand God as combining both dark and light. So it is not in repressing and locking away the dark aspects of our psyche, as through repression it may become pathological, it is about acknowledging and embracing all facets of our psyche so that they may mingle and integrate to become a whole person. This way, the self maintains control over each facet 
ultimately becoming the leader of one's own life, instead of a slave of their unconscious. The themes of forgotten youth intermingle with the themes of loss of belief. It is implied that the parents have each had adventures with Peter Pan, though none remember it. Like Mrs. Darling feeling like she knows Peter, Mr. Darling remarking that he sees a pirate ship in the clouds and that he's seen it before a long time ago when he was very young. And in the narration of the stars, that John, Michael and the Lost Boys, and even to an extent Wendy, all forgot Peter and their adventures, despite it being supposedly life-changing. Because how can these kids forget such things, flying through veils of time, narrowly escaping death, killing pirates with their sword, all these things would be expected to be remembered and to have changed them as people, yet they all forget and believe that it's all just a part of their childhood games. How? Because Neverland and Peter Pan are personifications of the free and unadulterated expression of youth. Not specifically the technicalities of youth, but the essence. And it is a common theme that if you stop believing, you forget. Like most adults, we tend to forget that part of ourselves that isn't influenced and chased by an unforeseen dictator. And once you stop believing, you forget how to fly. You forget ever knowing how to do it. Because one has ceased to think happy thoughts. One has forgotten the weightless free mind of a child. All children, except one, grow up. Peter never forgets because he never stops believing, and that constant belief causes him to forget other things, like the people who were once dear to him. So the real tragedy is that we all forget some part of ourselves that will always be there, but will always be locked away, like the dust at the bottom of a toy box. And once you forget all about that part, you cease to believe in anything other than what you know, see, or touch. You cease to believe in anything magical, anything outside of your perceived reality, and grow accustomed to living in that tiny fragment, thinking that that is the whole of it. This is the end of the Peter Pan episode. I hope you enjoyed it and that this interpretation expanded your perspective and opened new avenues of approaching seemingly childish films. Let me know if you saw what I saw or if you have an alternate view that I didn't mention, as all perspectives are correct in their own way. Thank you for listening to another episode of To See or Not To See. I am your host, Grace Curley. What did you see? Or not see? That is the question.